So welcome to the fifth episode, or is it the fourth? Fourth, fourth. Yeah, I don't know if pilots counts as zero. No, pilot counts as one, and we're still only on four. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so welcome to episode four of What Do You Think About X? It's actually episode two, because we only named it last episode. Welcome to this episode of (laughs) What Do You Think About X? We were thinking about this before. This might actually come in two parts. We'll see how the discussion goes. And that's mainly because we're going to be tackling sort of two sets of like literature or two podcasts, right? We'll share them in a link somewhere or comment thing. As as I uh, answered um, <laughs> uh, Stuart when he asked us about setting stuff up for their podcast, it may come as a shock to you, but I'm not the techie one. So <laughs> when I say we'll share a link somewhere, I have no idea what I'm talking about. The dangerous part of that though, is that you forget to tell me, and then I don't share it. <laughs> so but. I guess, I guess this. So there's two, two, th- two kind of podcasts and books that you can, or in particular, a book that you can explore if you're interested. A book, a new book by Michael Sandel called The Tyranny of Merit, which is really, really interesting read. He's a really great philosopher because he, well, I think he is. I think he's interesting. I think he writes interesting things, thought-provoking things. But he also writes things for, I guess we could loosely term, for public consumption, right, if you like. So he doesn't just write kind of books solely aimed at academic discussion about justice and stuff. He also wants to try and, in his own eyes, reinvigorate public discourse, particularly in America. You can say public discourse, where where is that today, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely things you could critique him on. But he, he has some really interesting ideas. And he's probably more well known for a book, What Money Can't Buy, which is kind of critiquing the idea of uh, how we've moved from a free market economy, if you like, to a free market society. So if you're kind of interested in, in what that sort of means, you can check that out. That Those themes do come in his new book, Tyranny of Merit. But what may be really quite interesting to a lot of people is he, he wants to critique meritocracy, he wants to show the dark side of meritocracy and how it has basically created the conditions which have led to the rise of populism and trumpism and stuff like that so it's really interesting we're going to talk about that and i thought it would be quite a good discussion then to connect something else that's very current at the moment right which is conspiracy theories and there's another podcast as well that we'll share in the comments that we listen to to prepare for this about the psychology of conspiracy theories and so i guess then you could term the question to frame this podcast as is there a connection between conspiracy theories and class? And the interesting thing about that is this is the second one we've done after we chose the name and we've straight onto a topic that doesn't fit the format for the title that we chose. So well done us. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about is there a connection? No, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, and when we ask that question, it's... So I'll just change the name again. It's fine. Just right, all absolutely. Just, you know, go go with the fly. Well, what's interesting, I think, about this is we actually had a few questions coming from Dan Smith, which will help us with our discussion, and we'll kind of bring them up as we go along. For our fives of fans. <laughs> but it's quite interesting because I don't want to actually, when we say that our conspiracy theories related to class. We're not automatically assuming, right, that the working class are the ones that are fanning the flames of conspiracy theories, right? The questions are reopened. You know, the 
the answers may well be, well, look, you can't actually make a connection like that. You have to be a lot more specific, right? Certain conspiracy theories will be more related to certain types of class than others, right? Because of where they're kind of cultivated, like on places like Reddit or 4chan. I'm sure that will come up, right? Is it 4chan or 4dchan? I'm so, I'm so here. 4chan. 4chan. 4dchan probably exists. Um. So we, you know, by no means are we going to have an exhaustive list of uh, conspiracy theories, but I'm sure we'll bring up a few. And there's the obvious ones, right? The flat earth, and there's the kind of the current ones around vaccinations and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, and of course, you know, class is a problematic term as well. But I mean, if we don't make some kind of generalization, we'll never get onto the conversation, right? But I'm sure that we'll talk about when we discuss certain conspiracy theories or the question in general, what we sort of mean by that in class exactly. Um, so there's, that's kind of what I guess the framing of it is. I mean, you wanted to sort of make this a lot more. I just, yeah. So you? when you proposed this, I really liked the argument about meritocracy because it's something I've only explored since you introduced the, the reading material, the homework last time. And uh, it's really interesting, and I'm not sure what I think on it yet. So I would like, yeah, I'd like to probe that a lot deeper. But I think the connection to conspiracy theory is interesting as well. And do, yeah, does one affect the other? Yeah. So, well, let's let's get into describing the kind of, if you like, bottom line point that Michael Sandel makes about meritocracy. So does he actually? There's a point. Does he, or in this context, is there a definition of meritocracy? Is there like a concrete definition? Yeah, so he references Michael Young a lot, right? Uh, a philosopher from the mid-20th century, right? He basically, it's quite interesting, actually, because when he sort of coined this term meritocracy, he actually sort of meant it as a dystopia because he, he saw the dark sides of what could happen to meritocracy. And Michael Sander wants to kind of recover that argument and relate it to the rise of populism now and ex explain sort of a kind of resentment that seems to be had at elites right and again a very difficult term to specify but loosely when we're talking about elites in this context we're basically saying those that have been successful you know financially perhaps uh, also with prestige you know and that's very important in American context, right? We're going to universities, probably even more kind of emphasised there than it is here, right? As a ticket to, to rising. But I think that it's definitely true over here as well. Your alumni network can be really, really powerful. And the people you meet, and this actually connects to one of these conspiracy theories we'll touch on later. But yeah, the people you meet and get involved with at uni can have a huge effect on the outcomes you achieve. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of just to make sure I answer your, your point, right, or your question about well, what is, is there a clear definition of meritocracy? Yeah, I mean, it's basically you rise by your own achievements, right? That's the meritocratic system. So if you think about this in, in contrast to an aristocracy where you inherit positions and things through family lineage, for example, like you know, in medieval times, the idea of a meritocracy emerges as a you know we have positions in society jobs uh, places of power governance and we get them based upon our merit and yeah our talents 
so I suppose it's and just just to make sure we're clear, clear definitions, like I do understand, obviously understand the, the concept of aristocracy. For me, it was always about it should be fairer, shouldn't it, than an aristocracy? The fact that you you should be it should be in level playing field. And I think what a lot of this touches on is actually in the reality, it's not. Well, so that's really fascinating. So first of all. Yeah, it's about fairness, but a lot of the time, I guess, and Michael Sandel makes this point, right? A lot of the time, people that slips into the idea that meritocracy is about equality. It's not. It's about people having positions because they deserve it, in terms of either like the idea that they've worked for it or they just they have the abilities and the talents for it. So it's not about equality. It's a it's a different way of organising society based on a, a more sort of fair idea, if you like, or a more effective idea than family lineage and inheriting things. Now, that's interesting because he sort of makes the point that you never really achieve anything solely of your own doing. There's always luck involved and <clears throat> there's always talents. There's even the idea that, look, if you're given prestige or financial reward for an ability or talent that you have, you're fortunate enough to be born into a society that values it. Think about Galileo, right? He was born into society that almost kind of burnt him at the stake, right? But today we obviously see him as a, a visionary, right? For thinking that the world was indeed round. A very topical uh, statement to make oh. <laughs> for this. Um, <laughs> so that's also very interesting then because... Do you think they called him a round earther? <laughs> Do you think he was like the original conspiracy theorist? <laughs> Going around painting like on, on walls, like the earth is round on like the side of highways and stuff. That's it, you've really ruined me. <laughs> so, your other point, and this leads into other point, right? That it's supposed to be uh, fairer and things like that. But the point that gets really interesting with Michael Sandow is what he wants to say is, it, in fact, it's when a meritocracy does work perfectly. Because we all know, right, there are obviously elements which disrupt meritocracy, right? Connections, alumni, all that kind of stuff. But it's when it works perfectly that this problem that he wants to, this dark side, this problem of meritocracy that he wants to show, gets even worse. So the solution of where well, we just make meritocracy work properly, true to its principles, is is actually even more dangerous in some ways and erodes an idea of the public good. So let's get on to actually explaining that. How can that be the case? So one of the things that's great about Marcus Sandow is he's just really good at packaging ideas in excellent f phrases that sort of explain themselves. So he describes... The first problem that emerges with meritocracy, by its definition, right, you get to any position that you achieve, right, through merit. So you, you, what he thinks this does is it cultivates a meritocratic hubris. So this is the term that he uses, mm -hmm. where you tend to think that you, what you've achieved, the success you've achieved in a country that's meritocratic or a system that's meritocratic, you tend to believe is of your own doing. And this creates a certain hubris or arrogance, which then 
sort of lends into looking down on those that have been perceived to not be successful, to perceive to have failed in a meritocratic system, so not being financially rewarded or having much prestige for what they do. And that also then kind of lends itself to this whole idea of, well, why should I have to pay my taxes to help others? Why should there be a welfare system? I, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And he thinks that that tends to sort of abstract away that, you know, people that get successful like that don't see all the arbitrary luck that's involved with their climb. And he even goes too far as saying that, you know, you couldn't take being born into a loving family that support you as luck mm-hmm. that you had no control over. You were not just talking about, you know, being lucky enough to be born with a college fund so you could go to university and stuff. Right? Now, then if we flip that and look at the other side, then also wrapped up in the idea of a meritocracy is that this idea then if you succeeded by your own doing, and we tend to think that because that, that's how we define meritocracy, right? If you do not succeed, then wrapped up in the idea of meritocracy, this, this, this gift, this offer, which is exciting right, for us because it makes us think we can succeed. We have a sense of agency, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm is the idea that if you haven't succeeded, it's of your own doing as well. So failure becomes something that is labelled onto those that are not deemed perceived to be successful. But it's also internalised as well by those that uh, are at the bottom, if you like. Again, when I say bottom, we're talking about financial reward or prestige, right? And those things often go hand in hand. He does talk a lot about as well, but we're going to probably get a bit diverse if we go too much into this idea. on what his solution we can talk a bit about what his solutions to meritocracy are but i am conscious of the fact that if we only talk about that look there's podcasts out there with him on talking about his book <laughs> so why would you listen to us so if you failed it's by of your own doing and he has this brilliant he's again he's so good at like uh, giving really good analogies to, to help get his point across there's this brilliant bit where he just says at least the medieval peasant didn't have that psychological burden of their mm-hmm. own failure, right? Because they could point to the landlord, right? And say, I, of course I am a peasant because this landlord is forcing me to. Or point to easily seen barriers that were keeping them in that position. If you have a narrative, and here he becomes quite critical of Obama and the Democrats in general in the last sort of 20 years. If your response then to this problem, right? Some people losing out is to, is to simply offer more opportunities to rise Right? And, and he also refers to Tony Blair's campaign, right? education, 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 as if that's the only solution not to sort of restructure a society or economy. If you, if you double down on meritocracy, essentially, mm-hmm. come out with rhetoric like Obama did, right, of you can make it if you try. It then gets worse because if you do fix the kind of corruptions of meritocracy, if you like, and it does become kind of true that you can rise by your own doing. That resentment, that that sense of failure, internalized failure and resentment at the elites, the elites defined by those who seem to be successful, becomes even worse. It's, it's really fascinating because I, for me personally, because I think I really strongly believe in the idea of the meritocracy, the meritocracy, actually. I think that that's kind of how I've lived and thought, thought right, and work really hard and, and try this and do that. And you can, yeah, you can sort of make a success of it but with, without ever really thinking about that other side of it. 
like this, which is really good. There's, so, there's something in what's been said there, I think, around. And it's interesting because it, because of the book you wrote about markets, the the failings of the market system in that it, it assumes perfect knowledge. It's one of these things that you learn that the, the market assumes well, the market will optimize for the best sort of like prices and distributions, etc. But it that assumes everyone in the system has perfect knowledge. And in reality, that's not the case. And there's something I think around a divorce between like meritocracy saying right the best people for the job will be selected so like and actually just people that are able of whatever job will be selected because when in reality you might be the best at something that you've never tried or you've never you've never been in the position to land that all the an organization might be out there looking for someone exactly like you but you just you you never meet and it's never the case and I, I'm not sure I'm a bit fluffy and vague in what I'm saying here but I think there's something in that yeah so I guess it's important to sort of, sort of say that he you know he's not like he's saying we need to get rid of uh the idea of meritocracy or the mm. use of meritocracy in most contexts because it makes sense to have the best person for the job right the and there is there's a sort of what he wants really wants is the redignification of that's not a word, is it? <laughs> Redignifying work. Um, but I think, and that's what I'm saying. It's like it's that you ingrained in us is that language, the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's not the best person for the job. It's the best per. It's it's the best person of the people we found, of the subset of all people. Yeah. We found these ones, and it's mm. that person that you're going to promote into the leadership position and things like that. When actually, the subset of people you found might all be bad at the thing you're yeah. trying to achieve. And there might be failures out there, people that you've, you've termed failures, that actually, that is right in their skill set. That's really what they're good at and what they're special at. So it's quite interesting because he works for Harvard. And um, this kind of point he makes uh, is that, look, anyone who's applying for Harvard they're all capable of getting into Harvard and doing really well. Like otherwise you probably wouldn't be applying to Harvard. So when we start selecting students and cutting out, it's just, it's just off, you know, very tiny, minute changes that don't really have, you know, aren't gonna, it's not like, you know, 50% of the people who apply to Harvard are not going to be successful and 50 are, and you've got to find the right 50. Everybody's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so this is the other thing he wants to add is that this isn't just bad for those at the bottom. It's bad for those at the top because you get this helicopter parenting, right? Where, you know, basically um, parents are, you know, cultivating a college student when they raise them because it's so important to American culture and getting ahead and all that kind of stuff that you go to university. And so they, you know, send them on these things to improve their, their CV or resume when they apply. And it's super hyper stressful and it doesn't breed good. You know, you have teenagers with hyper anxiety and things like that. So he, he thinks it's bad for everyone all round. And it's, I know what you mean. It's one of those ideas. It's one of those things that when it's really brought to the fore, you're sort of like, how come we never really, talk about that often yeah. it seems so obvious it's funny like i've experienced i've seen that actually but when i used to tutor i tutored um for a few years and there were yeah like young adults were just sort of just just about to go to uni and there was massive differences in the kinds of people i was seeing and there were there were 
yeah, these young adults that were like, right, I, I get out of tennis at this time and I'm going to this club and then following that club, I'll have my tutoring session. And, uh, and there'll be like three or four things on the same evening. I think that's so much pressure at that age. That's so much. And all right, you've got the energy and, and uh, at that time. But yeah, it, that must be stressful. And it, how are you then going to relate to people that didn't have the opportunity to have music lessons and, and tennis lessons and, mm. and, and tutoring and things like that. And then think actually, yeah, it's almost like the meritocracy works if everyone starts at the same point, but actually we don't, we still got this, we've still got that. The fact that you can inherit the success of your parents means that all the, the advantages your parents had means that actually, and I think he goes on to talk about these points in mm. that, yeah, these elite families, start so much further down the line than those that are disadvantaged and it comes out in the statistics was it one in 50 i think it was in yeah one in 50 people from lower income families have a uh, score well in sats compared to one in five from yeah these elite families so this is what he connects to again you know kind of salesperson phrase right the rhetoric of rising it's like it's all rhetoric because it's not coming out in the wash right you're not getting these uh lower income families climb up the ladder as it were so so it's so it's not it's not working but the thing is and this to reiterate that point if it did it would make the the sort of resentment even worse because at least there's a slight mystification of it you could mm -hmm. you know be, because we know that when it gets corrupted you can point to those corruptions right and you know obvious ones about that and he talks a bit about this obvious ones to that are ethnicity and gender right um and his kind of point about the the democrats is that whilst they acknowledge well they, at least in narrative uh, and here he talks about hillary clinton they acknowledge those barriers they didn't really acknowledge the class barrier and so this resentment rises in a kind of white working class who don't understand why they're privileged or whatever um and so he uses all this kind of as an explanation meritocracy at its core if not sort of countered with an idea of common unity and public good at its core will basically cause mass sort of this resentment which will lead to a, a, the perfect conditions for the rise of, of populism and populist characters like trump right who take control of this and use it and turn it into toxic toxicity and, and turn it towards very hot, horrible kind of you know and, and really racist agendas and stuff so it's it's and it's interesting what you've said about the sort of you know the tennis thing right because that connects to some of the other stuff he said in other books about like if you don't have class mixing exercises or class mixing sort of things that you do and here he talks about american football when he was younger it used to be a class mixing exercise everybody would go to the football stadium drink the same you know stale beer had the same hot dogs it rained everybody got, everybody got wet but when free market economics turns in it, it can produce social relations so now you go to football you know there's people in a box getting champagne there's people it's not a class mix exercise i mean you can think about this with travel right mm -hmm. going to the airport for someone who's on a low-income salary uh is a stressful time waiting boring thing right but if you are whisked there and you go into the vip room and you skip the queues because you paid for it it's a completely different experience it's not stressful at all and the flying itself you know in a big business class kind of thing so there's loads of things around this that you could go in directions talking about class and mm -hmm. um gender barriers and ethnicity barriers and racism and all that kind of stuff um so there's loads you could talk about 
and it is interesting in itself to discuss whether you know how this can cause resentment and he does take specific aim at the uk and the us really uh and it's interesting because in america it's so prevalent this idea that you can mm. make the american dream right it's so prevalent well, it's even so you said earlier, you said it's just the term get, getting ahead. And you said it in just in mid-flow. And it's it's, it's like instinctive. getting yeah. ahead of what? Of yeah. What? Like, it's not and the, the, the language, the lexicon that we all use isn't like live a meaningful life or live an enjoyable life or like contribute. It's get ahead, get ahead. It's a race. You're, you're in a competition. You're, you're, you're gauged by where you are in reference to others. And that's really damaging, isn't it, from a communal kind of perspective? Yeah, very much so. Um, he says it corrodes the public good. That's his kind of argument. If we all convince ourselves that we're all in a game where we, if we we earn our own position by our own doing and our own failures by our own doing, it just corrodes any sense of public good and, and unity. And that's quite interesting because, again, there's another side topic you could talk about, again, these separate pod- podcasts. There's another uh, philosopher called Slavoj Žižek, and he has made this kind of observation that there's a sort of an elite global class now that have more in common with each other than they do with people within their own country, right? And that you can see that as not problematic because, you know, nationalism has also <laughs> got its dark side, right? Um, but it is interesting to think about, right? You know, the type of people that would do the same things regardless of where they are, mm-hmm. but they form mm-hmm. like an elite global caste with their, with their private helicopters and things like that. So it's important to note here, he's not like... He's not trying to create another class war. Like he's not sort of, he's not a Marxist. He's not going, and we should hate upon those. Who, you know, he's he's one of these people. He's a Harvard professor. Do you know what I mean? He's, mm. he's well, I don't even think you have to go as high as that though. It's something that because I think there's damaging behaviours actually in just in people that have been educated. Like you see very damaging behaviour in people that have been educated, especially people that have done advanced degrees. And yeah. from running like data science teams, typically lots of data scientists tend to have phds in in very technical subjects and actually there's a bit of like intellectual snobbery around Mm. being managed by someone that isn't that hasn't got a doctorate or hasn't done hasn't kind of done the time and it's really is really really common and these people are it's that or you just don't understand and actually that that propagates out to like when you're talking about politics and some of these people just will not engage with people they don't agree with because they're right and you just don't understand mm. and that 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 intellectual snobbery is really really damaging so i don't think you have to go to the this super elite class of people to see it i think you see it, mm. it's, it's a lot more common than that i think and i'm conscious that we should probably start move, explain the other uh podcast too so we can talk about like this connection but but also like we said it might go in two parts so well i think the question will really yeah. from where we are actually yeah well i just kind of wanted to add something into this uh, as a personal kind of anecdotal experience so uh, that talks to something that he also mentions in, in the book uh that it's even worse in america generally because at least in the uk there is still a sort of defiant pride to being working class because of the union history mm-hmm. probably right and the fact that the, the working class basically you know built so much of the country right uh oh no and i think it's also important here to mention that when i say working class you know i don't just mean white working class right um so that's and i i i know i i know that i've internalized that because so because you're talking about intellectual snobbery right i mean (laughs) i work in philosophy political philosophy so when i go to conferences i have recognized in myself right when 
I go and I look at the room and everybody's quite, sounds quite, you know, a lot more better spoke. I'm about to say more well spoken, case in point. <laughs> better spoken than me, right? And all this kind of stuff. And it sort of gets my back up a bit, a little bit. Mm. And I notice that when I'm presenting my papers and stuff, the twi- the Essex twang <laughs> starts to come out. It's, it's, it's almost as if I'm trying to say that I'm, I'm not one of you. Yeah. I, and and I, because I've internalized it, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Do you know what I mean? I didn't, I wasn't born into it like you. So we all, we've all internalised it. There's a couple of really interesting things there. So there was a really good BBC um, programme about classism being like the last invisible barrier. And it was really, really, really interesting. And I related to it a lot because because uh, of the way I speak. So I, I've I've been afforded opportunities and things because of the way, I, the way I speak. And actually, if you... It sounds stupid, but like people do, there's this whole thing about the way you speak and people assume intelligence and things like that. And I'm not the best speaker ever, but if you spoke to many of the people that are from where I'm from in East London, like actually, I do sound incredibly well spoken and I kind of blend in and it kind of, I think that's helped me kind of stealth past that class barrier at, at some points. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was actually the, there's people of a certain generation, it's like our age and a bit maybe a bit older, but everyone seems to be working class. Like it's like a badge of honor. <laughs> Everyone's you see it all the time. <laughs> like these people driving around in like 80 grand cars, big house. Yeah, I'm working class. Yeah, my dad was a milkman. And like everyone is. Like, yeah, like yeah. absolutely. Well, it's I, like I, a no one ever goes, oh no, no, I was I was like really <laughs> I was really rich and I've, yeah, I've wasted it. I mean, least. so one of the things that used to really get my back up was when Dan uh, Smith with Jonathan Gregory would say, oh, you, you know, you, you, you grew up in an orchard because there was a, there was a, a plot of land that the, this building company owned, right? They bought it, but the council basically put, just put a, a no, you're not, you're not building on this for, for ages and throughout my whole childhood, actually. So it was because of that, but, the implication is I was getting my back up because it felt like my working class credentials were being taken away. I was getting pissed off. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, well, I was working class as well. And I think it plays into like, we all love the underdog story as well. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. like you watch any, any like so many films, it's about the underdog. We like the idea that, that you can come from nothing and just by hard work, you can succeed and things like that. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> And there is obviously like I think there's also like those further distinctions of like kind of like you know lower working class and and all that and middle working class because mm-hmm. like, I mean I didn't grow up in a council estate but it's weird because in, in a lot of ways our and it wasn't forever but it was a big stretch of my childhood like our uh, lack of money was emphasised because because of the people around us mm-hmm. were so so much wealthier than we were. That it, it felt emphasised, you know, and even to the point where you're like, ah, oh, he's wearing Gola trainers, <laughs> you know, not Nike or whatever, you know, all those stupid things. But so yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and it's all to, it's all to do with this kind of at the same. So we've got this to, to sort of bring home the original point in America. If you're working class, right, he sort of basically says you're, you're just trash, you're just trader trash. That's what you perceive that. So there isn't this sort of defiant pride. So it's kind of even worse there in America, and that probably explains how the fact it's even you know it's even more pronounced, I guess, the the Trumpism and the kind of make America great again and all that stuff. 
And I, I strongly recommend, you know, recommend anyone, if, if any of this stuff, that, you know, was meant to be a kind of a little review of it has been interesting to anyone. Uh, he's a great person to to read, but he also does his own Audible and, and Audible stuff, right? So you can actually listen to his... To so don't memory. waste any more time listening to us talk yeah. about it. You can listen to him. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, and he's he's master of his art as well. Like, he's he's obviously been at it for years and, you know, he crafts it very well. So at it's... It. it's <laughs> He's at it. I was like, oh, that's He's at it. It's part of a global conspiracy. <laughs> so, okay, good. Great, great. Seem- Sounds very. Seeming seamless segue there from ads. Part of a global conspiracy. Sounds very socialist, doesn't it? <laughs> so, the conspiracy theory thing. So, so the original. Whilst Get the, the question out. Get the question out. What? I think it's, the, the question's a good leading, I think, from where we were talking about right. intellectual snobbery and, and things yeah. like that. And classism i think it's a really good step over so obviously we've had hundreds of questions we can't answer them all so we're just going to focus on a, a few <laughs> most of them have been like what are you all about so what is this i guess i will yeah okay so dan, dan sent in some questions right because he also really likes mark sandor we, we sort of talk about him a lot um it's so like cool and um the first question what data and insights have led you to believe there may be a link between belief in conspiracy theories and class? And so that kind of, you know, that that sort of is the sort of the, fra- the frame of the podcast. So I guess I guess we should explain the other, or at least because a lot of people aren't going to listen to that podcast about conspiracy theories or, or the other one, Michael Sandel. So just or in fact this one, <laughs> or, this, or this one. <laughs> So conspiracy, there's a great pod. I saw it on Full Fact. It's actually it was on Full Fact, and there's a lot of stuff about this. you can read. Right, the psychology of conspiracy theories is a good book uh, by Jan Wilhelm. And there's for me, this is a very interesting topic. Right, that the fact that there's a psychological attraction to conspiracy theories, and to take that question seriously, and so really and to sort of distill down the podcast that we'll link up it's that one a conspiracy theory is intellectually attractive because it makes you feel like you have discovered something and therefore you've got you know something that others don't so i wondered if there was a connection there between a sort of like looking down on people for not getting that college education but you found something out right so you somehow actually know they're the ones that are badly educated and things right second kind of point is it makes you feel part of a, a group so if again if you feel like you kind of are defined by your meritocratic failure and suddenly you're part of a group that accepts you and three there's an explanation now you're you've got that psychological burden lifted if you've got a conspiracy theory to point at and so this is why i haven't succeeded this is why i'm a round earther yeah yeah so I guess then, so like, is there a connection between this kind of class or meritocratic resentment and conspiracy theories, or, or is it a different kind of connection? So to problematize that is one of the points that Daniel sort of makes, right? Is you know some of the conspiracy theories are from demographics of people who sort of spend loads of time on Reddit or 4chan, and you know. Early online communities, he says, are basically 90s and noughties mm-hmm. of 
largely populated by middle class males. And some of the conspiracy theories, sort of the anti-vaxxer thing, I don't, I don't think is related to being sort of lower class, right? Or working class. It seems to have a more yeah. new age kind of middle class, upper class even, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow kind of thing going on. I almost think there's, yeah, I feel like there's something in like the technology complexity thing as well. Like I'm thinking about the 5G coronavirus stuff mm. that's going around and it's like it's like anything like su- like sufficient technology and magic it's it's if you can just add enough sort of techno babble to something it's it becomes it sounds believable so people start to believe it and then t- start to tell you about it yeah i mean because does a lack of education make you more susceptible to a conspiracy theory no. I don't know because I think if we're saying it, I think if you've if you've had a broad education like a, a very broad education then actually you, you might be more susceptible to connecting those dots and things like that and saying oh, I can I can understand better understanding an argument but if the if the actual conspiracy theory is in a is in a realm of study that you've you've just never really dived into then you're in that dangerous position of thinking that you know everything and you're well educated, but not actually understanding the first, the basic principles of whatever the, the, the conspiracy theory is about. Yeah. And then you, and then actually, and then you become almost, and then for those people that start to believe it, you, you're, you might have an, like an intellectual authority over your peer group. Mm. And so they start and then it propagates. Well, th- and that ties into another, one of the other points made in this conspiracy theory podcast, right? From full fact, was this idea that human brains actually struggle to accept random things happen and like to put patterns into things. Mm-hmm. And that's more to do with like evolutionary psychology, things like that. And that actually requires quite high level thinking in a lot of ways right connecting dots and things like that to be able to i mean there's a thin line i guess between visionary thinking in that way and yeah just seeing i mean there's that meme going around on facebook right that wisdom insight conspiracy theory thing right (laughs) where there's all the dots connected uh so I wonder if it's good to talk about specific conspiracy theories then see whether they relate to or if they if they have a certain demographic even to like pull that question back do they have yeah. a certain demographic anecdotally from just thinking about it I don't think from my experience I don't think so but again I think different you've got like different flavors of conspiracy theory I've never met anyone that believes in lizard people but I'd love to like I'd like to meet a proper lizard person conspiracy theorist. That would be great because I'd love to know why. That's brilliant. But at the same time, I have met anti-vaxxers. I know people that are funny about five G and chemtrails and stuff like that. Well, you looked that up, didn't you? You looked at the chemtrails. I was trying to find demographics. Yeah, but I'm sure there's a way of doing it, and I'll, I'll dig around after this. But it was that was looking at in the US where it was. So search term trends, essentially, I was looking at and looking at where it's most likely served. And it was like Arizona, Nevada, California in the States seemed to have to, to Google 
both chemtrails and flat earth actually both sort of ranked highest of the states so there there's a bit more research looking into the numbers there but i don't know what that tells you That's... well no i mean because there, there are there is there are books around this there's conspiracy theories and the people who believe them uh, which is written by uh, joseph usinki and it's even sort of like is there a people that believe him that's that's i think that's the kind of one of the sort of important parts of this is there a type of person who believes them but and is that actually related to a kind of class or you know poor education poor access to education is it more of a psychological thing right that when we say the people who believe them we're actually talking about people that might have had suffered trauma and you know traumas of exclusion like bullying things like that because then you like you you get that i feel part of a group and what i think becomes validated like and that's sort of where the internet i guess becomes such a sort of it has that dangerous edge to it right all ideas mm -hmm. can be validated when you you form a community on them did i ever tell you about getting pulled into the flat earther forum no back in so back when i was doing like my lasers stuff someone i don't know how they got involved but they were having an argument with these flat earthers and it was on like a forum like a pop yeah the old kind of forum you used to log into and he was like could you come in and just read these discussions and like say something as a bit of an expert on the matter because it was about it was about laser rangefinders which is what i was studying at the time so went on and there was this discussion about um an experiment they'd done uh I can't remember the name, the specifics now, a lake in, I'm going to say Switzerland, that is known to be incredible. It's a really, really big lake and it's like very flat. All the land around it's quite flat. And the idea being that, well, if it is, if I if I point my laser from one end of the lake to the other, if the, if the earth was curved, then it wouldn't, it would change heights and things like that. And when you dive, when I, I got onto the forum and I put in a few arguments about how their margin of error was too small and, and did some of the maths. And then I just got into this huge, like, groups of people on this forum just attacking me and, like, pulling me apart, like, really, like, attacking my credentials as an expert on the matter and saying I'd made it all up and all this stuff. And I was just like, wow, okay. I kind of gave up. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to use the word credentials because that features a lot in, in Michael Sanders' Tyranny of Merit, right, where he talks about we've got this credentialism sort of society as well today. And I, I, I mean, it's I mean this podcast, um, I mean, again, like it's, uh, Professor Karen Douglas is, is the person really that's talking mostly about this. And I think this is a it's quite a new sort of area to sort of ask, OK, conspiracy theories, let, let's actually take them seriously for a moment, not the actual theories themselves, but the people that that believe them and ask why do people believe them who's susceptible to them is this a, a sort of socioeconomic thing right is this a psychological thing right and it seems to me that it's it, it's all of them i was so to think about one specific conspiracy theory which does seem to be related perhaps to socioeconomic class and things is it the QAnon one, right? Or yeah. QAnon, QAnon? I would say QAnon, yeah, I'm not really sure. QAnon, yeah. Because that's got loads of Trump supporters in, and generally, like, we know that Trump has a sort of quite wide support base from kind of white working class. Basically, says the government's from, the, the Democrats are run by paedophiles and cannibals. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Cannibals, wow. right? <laughs> so, 
and they're they're basically in, involved in a worldwide conspiracy um of of taking children and but also yeah eating them to empower empower themselves and i know i know so this is the point that karen douglas kind of makes is that we we have such an issue with this in trying to tackle this because you've just talked about tackling it first of all because you're laughing of course you're laughing. Because... It's just the way you said taking children and eating them. <laughs> How can you deliver but, that information no, without... No, do you know no. what I mean? I know. But but the thing is, right, I've got no data either way. I don't... Like, I don't know either way. But my, my model of the world challenges that quite strongly. Maybe not as much. Interesting, maybe not as much the paedophilia stuff in recent... Sort of the last 15 years, we've seen a lot of stuff um, look the what's the the jeremy epstein stuff jeffrey epstein story stuff showing that actually yeah it's still going on there's the yeah i think you said something really important there because often what frustrates me the most about conspiracy theories is it feels like it's undoing the credibility of real critical thinking right because it's not as if you know, and I've spoken to a lot of anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists talking about big pharma and things like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah I know. It's like profit motive, right? Corrupts mm-hmm. things sometimes. It, it, like that's something that we often look at. And that's often in particular like Marxist academics in, you know, in politics departments will, will, will be the first people to say that. So there's like an, a core of something that then gets taken to such a, an extreme that it feels like that sort of obfuscates or veils or hides the actual things that are going on in plain sight and, and takes away our power to critique those. And what, what I was just thinking there, you've said that, right? Actually, in the argument I just made, you know, I could believe the paedophile stuff more, not because of any slight on any group of people, just because of recent events and things that we've seen. But, but right, and I think this says more about maybe my mental model, but had there been a string of high profile cannibalism court cases in the UK yeah. over the last, those are top of the pops presenters eating people in the crowd, then actually I'd be more inclined to believe it. Well, yeah. And so, because, because again, because we can look at America and see the, the, the influence that, big pharmaceutical companies have and look at say the mental well-being of teenagers uh, in america and kids and how often like how often people are put on medication as opposed to the actual therapy and we can you know that's a thing that we could actually say or even the case in the 90s i think it was when with the hiv drug where south african government i think just basically used the same stuff that was already patented and the american government ended up taking them to court i'll look it up in a, in a minute i can't remember what specific company it was and this was a close case because on the one hand you had this claim of property rights you know all these resources have gone into making this vaccine it needs to be profitable otherwise they won't do it um versus the fact that they would you know they could the government couldn't afford it and if you're a south african government your choice is well do we you know rip off this patent and save thousands of people's lives in a country mm. where at that particular time HIV was a much bigger issue than it was in America right and so you could talk about the corruption of big pharma in, in that sense right uh, what I think for me is the difference is conspiracy theorists overestimate 
how much power yeah. these institutions and people have and the and and how much they collaborate with each other or even just how capable big groups of like big organizations are I think that when you get seen to the guts of how a lot of big companies work and how they're like the, the tech that runs them and things like that, mm. yeah, there's a vast overestimation of how sophisticated some of these things are. Well, yeah, because I mean, a friend of mine, uh, Liam, he, he sort of he's doing his PhD in, in international law and he, he has a background in international relations uh, theory and stuff like that. And he's kind of, I remember him saying to me a little while ago, was that you know, I if you studied our theory, you'd know that we can't even collaborate over, you know, like simple free trade agreements, let alone conspire together with countries, you know, other countries to to deliver a global pandemic to feed big pharma. Like, so it's vast. That, I guess that's when it slips into conspiracy theory, thinking that there's someone at the helm of it all. Lizard people. Lizard people. It, but the one that gets me at the moment is it's like the, okay, I'm not getting the, the, coronavirus vaccine not because i'm an anti-vaxxer but because there's mind control bots in it yeah i've had that conversation with someone as well i've heard that and and like that's fascinating because i think like okay that's the kind of thing that's come out of a film and you always ask that question who benefits well in that case obviously the government benefits if it does manage to mass mind control everyone so but but there's a very real risk in that you you are not not just to yourself but to all the people that you know because you're you're saying you're not going to take this vaccine for a really contagious disease that's threatening everyone, but at the same time you're happy to consume mass media. You're happy mm. to just take the the, the newspaper as truth to social media to to mm. do all your basically take one or two blog posts as fact and stuff like that. Yeah, and so I always think about homeopathy. You know, it's incredible that sort of homeopathists kind of point at how much of a billion dollar industry big pharma is when homeopathy itself is also now a billion dollar industry so do you not think that they, it's almost as if they apply the same level of critique to, to their own sources as they do to, to others i but i also don't think that's unique for conspiracy theories no. i also think that is also libertarians who think that we almost should always shrink the state and allow the free market to you know basically resolve all issues for us don't apply that same level of scrutiny that they apply to government control to to big companies which is bizarre it's like they're walking around one eye closed just as a, just as a little dig there as i always enjoy a little dig at the liberals so don't take offense <laughs> but, but do, you know, do you know what what is truth anyway well, so, really <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative I mean, it's what is truth, really? <laughs> the thing is, though, you've hit, you've said something about ten minutes ago, and we we haven't actually tackled it. Really, it, it felt like what you were saying was, how do we? Because we dismiss all these things out of hand, but how do we actually know our worldview is more accurate than because aren't? And that's that same old thing trying to make an equivalence of well, you if you believe the scientist it's just the same as believing the, the priest do you know what i mean so how do we know when we don't have access to seeing it and you know and i, I get i guess my answer is that would be you've got to you can't there are certain institutions that you can sort of one say that you can trust more 
And part of that, actually, because they'll always point to, oh, but, you know, smoking, the, the true effects of smoking was smothered, stuff like that. But it's actually in the failings that I, I actually trust the sort of more scientific approach more, because that's the point, right? When there's a failing, you actually find out about it and it's corrected. That's actually like how you can trust that approach. And of course, there's all sorts of things about method. And if I was to go into a lab and had the expertise to do that and did the same thing, I'd get the same results. But all of that, what's very interesting about this is how conspiracy theories abstract and depersonalize the people involved. So to think that, for example, and I've had these conversations, it's not the same area because I, I don't, you know, I don't actually do anything useful. <laughs> philosophy and i'm not making vaccines but you know i know i know people in, in the hallways and we talk to them these are people that i, that I talk to they're, they're not you know the people in the labs right now well, every single every single science <laughs> right now is involved in it and also keeping stim about it like uh, what makes that harder to believe is that the first person that gives it all up becomes very rich and famous yes exactly or assassinated i suppose because yeah well it and it, it comes around to like there's this stuff about and it's, it's kind of not really conspiracy theories but it's on a similar vein that always go back to the idea of these people used to talk to me a lot about the the two ai bots that were talking to each other and they made up their own language and they had to be switched off because oh the, what they're talking about we don't know what they're talking about and and like the, the real essence is they got that wasn't what they were supposed to be doing so we switched them off like that's that wasn't the purpose of the experiment was for them to talk to each other so they got turned off but people that's not as interesting as two robots make up a language and talk talk amongst themselves about us and it goes back to a quote something my friend like always says never let the truth get in the way of a good story yeah yeah and i guess so what we've been talking about is how conspiracy theories well it seems many of them are related to a certain sense of paranoia or a, a certain sense of yeah exclusion or trauma and and that sort of that sounds like we're sort of pathologizing people who believe in conspiracy theories and so we mentioned QAnon a, a moment ago so let's bring back the other kind of potential cause which is maybe it's related to socioeconomic issues around class or lack of education because that one is seemingly has a support from a very kind of lower income bracket of people that vote for donald trump and and the reason that we kind of know that is part of the the conspiracy theory is that amongst this ring of uh, democrats i don't know if i can say who are cannibals without without giggling now that you've know that you've made me think about it but is 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 a soul is a, is a soul fighter against it a hero who is giving us secret messages in press conferences and and such things and that hero uh, is Donald Trump and and part of their conspiracy theory is that they say that he he speaks in these weird broken sentences because he's actually speaking in code seriously speaking in code to us to let us know this is all going on and QAnon people I mean, appear at Trump rallies with signs and everything. Uh, and he actually pointed to uh, one of his rallies, pointed to someone with a QAnon sign, and said there's some good people here, and pointed towards them, right? So, wow, that's a very politically motivated... I mean, they all are, aren't they? But, I mean, very politically sort of ideologically motivated. It's connected to 
you know, <laughs> it's connected to Trump. He's he's the savior. So I don't know if that's because he's developed a cult of personality, and the, and but the fact that he's been able to do that is because of all of the meritocratic kind of resentment that I guess Michael Sandor explains. And I think it kind of ties in. It all, and it does tie into that that class discussion that we were having and the meritocracy and that the kind of secret society running things or groups of secret societies that's far more believable i think like it, because actually like we've said earlier that the people you knew you know do have a huge effect and you look at some governments and the way they're run and who's appointed to positions of power and things like that that makes though that class of things like the skull and bones club i mentioned earlier and the conspiracies that surround them and it, it and it goes back to that psychological burden right i found a nice nice reason to to why i've not succeeded and things like that and that's well i'd be i'd be mm. an elite person if i was in one of these secret clubs as well or mm. not saying that's the the only reason people believe in them or they come up but i just think it's an interesting link yeah so there is there is that there are it seems to be there there are contexts in which that emerges but there are also contexts in which it isn't that demographic right it's i mean what was that program a while ago with gwyneth paltrow on and she was involved in 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 some kind of statement about this too. i don't, I don't want to single her out because like it's just, it's just because i don't know much about sorry celebrities. sorry if you're listening gwyneth uh, <laughs> yeah i'm sure she really gives a shit what i say <laughs> there was something um, there was a program on a little while ago and it I, I it's very uh, so some of this appears to be connected to a new age you know spiritualism uh it was the goop lab that was it the goop lab. Goop. yeah that was it the jade egg thing yeah so this is it the jade egg fiasco of 2017 so a 66 dollar jade egg that was claimed it can improve everything from orgasms and hormonal imbalances to feminine energy when inserted into a woman's vagina gynecologists quickly responded to warn women that the eggs could actually be dangerous and Goop was hit with a $144,000 fine for its unsubstantiated marketing claims. So, and I believe, according to this article, goodhousekeeping.com, that Gwyneth Paltrow was one of these, it launched this Goop thing and was part, part of, sort of thought that, or said something that this was, this worked in this way or something, or was part of the program in the Goop lab. So there does seem to be like a, a bee venom therapy. That's another one. Bee venom <laughs> therapy. With these, these are more like homeopathic kind of yeah. like crystal healing, you know, yeah. conspiracy theories. Again, it's just alternative. Well, so I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I take your point, but then isn't a lot of this stemming from a mm. suspicion over conventional medicine? Like, and isn't it that connected to the influence of big pharma? Um, I think it's. I think the point around being in the know is more powerful there. I think, like, oh, but I under, oh, but I know 
say crystal healing for example oh, i know about th this thing and it's really powerful and these are the reasons why and that that feeling of mm. contentment that you know something special and it's special for you and it's working mm. whereas medicine maybe failed you yeah That's probably a more powerful argument i'd say and and we could also, I mean, no, it's, it's important to point out too that sometimes some of these things sort of work because of the belief in them, right? And because of well, the placebo type effect. Yeah, and... right. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe, they work, that... maybe they just work, Simon. Maybe they do. You'll never know. I mean, maybe that was a leap, I guess, to, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was a leap to sort of suggest that. But I. Always bashing on Gwyneth, didn't you? <laughs> Any excuse to pull her up. It's because I love Coldplay so much. <laughs> That's not true. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if we've really kind of got to the bottom of anything here. But maybe that was the point. You know, Doubtful. That, well, maybe that's the point that 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 you, we can't actually, you know, conspiracy theories are just something that is solely a uh, psychological area of study, right? Rather than being something that is yeah, a, a poor working class background is a some kind of waiting to happen to answer dad's question area i don't i don't think i don't think there is a question there is a link right that's <laughs> cut a long story short i'll edit the last 40 minutes out <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess so i guess in some ways you're probably right i mean but that was what i wanted to, to, to mm -hmm. ask you know i wanted to sort of I think it was because of seeing the QAnon thing, right? And being like, well, and then thinking about the, but then seeing the sort of Antifaxa thing as predominantly from a sort of more, you know, leisure class, if you like, color, you know, and then thinking, well, are certain conspiracy theories related to certain class groups for certain reasons mm -hmm. and others not? Like, so, so maybe that maybe there is a link in the sense of a conspiracy theory which explains explains why some people are at the bottom and one, some people at the top, right? Like that TV series, Mr. Robot was very much like that in that sense, you know, a conspiracy theory against sort of big companies and, and, and such like, or big, I don't know, because a lot of this is, is real, like banking or whatever, but anything explains that your, your situation to you and, and alleviate some of that meritocratic pain that could take root. Mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a lower class kind of lower income setting but then there's this sort of then there's the other conspiracy theories i guess about 5g and things like that that are more about yeah rejection more about a sort of embracing of new age spiritualism and i i, I tend to think you you see that a bit more in the middle class and above oh it's it's i think there's a lot of it so the lot of ones we've mentioned actually are about control and like government control and things mm. like that. And maybe you do see that more in, oh, I don't know though. Yeah. No, I don't think there's a link. I'm, I'm inconclusive. So really unsatisfying answer. And I don't think we should take any more questions. <laughs> well, it would be interesting to explore the idea of conspiracy theories in outside of a, a Western context, wouldn't it? <sighs> That'd be good. Really okay. good. And see if it is more socioeconomic in that sense. Uh, so there we go. Um, but if you do want to hear us waffle on a bit more about meritocracy, you know, just let us know. We'll make another another podcast about it. Or if you want to know why Simon's got it in for Gwyneth Paltrow. 
That's because I wanted to be an actor. He was heartbroken. <laughs> well, I hope at least we've had a kind of discussion which was in some ways, I don't know, thought provoking. <laughs> Even if it was the conceit of it was turned out to be complete false. We're so, we're so apologetic on this. I think we should just accept it's, it's rubbish and just get on with it. <laughs> well, you see that? Ah, but maybe that was the point, yeah? Look, in code, this is a great podcast. This podcast is a conspiracy theory, right? And what I'm doing is double bluffing. So people out there know that it really is. Okay, great. All right, it's time to put you and I to bed, I think. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Dan.